Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, it's good to have you here this morning. We're going to be jumping back into the book of 1 John, covering the fourth chapter um, today, which really is about God's transformation um, in our heart through his love. And what's cool about this scripture uh, that just funny how it worked out for, for me to preach this weekend is I went through a season a couple of years ago that I've shared um, different times um, with people here at the church or even preaching of going through a season of pretty um, intense burnout and anxiety and um, kind of depression through um, some of the street outreach and things that Sarah and I were doing in uh, Fort Collins. And when I got kind of to my lowest point, First um, John chapter four was really kind of the foundational scripture God used in my life um, to bring transformation. And during that time that I was um, struggling, kind of started coming out of it, I got a call um, from Pastor John to come preach during Missions Week um, here at Mitchell Breen Church, and I taught on 1 John chapter 4. So kind of just a little bit of a full circle deal for me that was fun in preparing and just seeing how God's love has been transforming me and working on me um, over the last couple years. And one thing we're going to see in chapter 4 is this holistic transformation of what God's love does in our heart. And I think there's three things we're going to see that God's love really does is one, um, it brings discernment um, into our heart. I know that during that season for me, um, things were very confusing and my discernment wasn't very good. And I was trying to navigate a lot of challenges and questions I had in my own life. And through this kind of refreshing of God's love, it brings clarity, brings discernment and brings direction into our life. The second thing we're going to find in this chapter is that God's love produces obedience. And during that season for me, because I was so beat down and a little confused, um, it's hard to be obedient. It's hard to know what those steps are to take. And God's love not only brings clarity, but it brings power for us to obey, to actually do what God has called us to do. And the third thing that we're going to see that God's love does in transforming our heart is it brings confidence and assurance um, into our heart, specifically about eternity and judgment. And even though during that season I didn't... Um, I didn't uh, lose my confidence or assurance of my salvation. There was times where it was like, man, is God gonna, is he beating up on me? Is he after me? Is he ever gonna let up on maybe the challenges and the discouragements that are in my life? And I, I lost some of that assurance that maybe God was with me in a positive way. But when we encounter God's love in a deep way in our heart, he really clears these three things, these three things up. He brings discernment, he brings the power to obey, and then he brings confidence, assurance that we can have peace with God even in the most difficult, um, difficult times. I want to read a, a scripture that I think sums this up pretty well. <coughs> it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I think this will be up on your screen as well. But 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse seven, and you may feel like maybe you're in a season like this where things are very tough. And I, I wanna encourage you that I think what we look at today with God's love um, will give you the power, again, the discernment, the clarity and the assurance to work through the, that um, this season. And in verse seven of 2 Corinthians four, he says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. And as I experienced the transformative power of God's love during this season, that's how I felt. If I'm struck down, I feel 
pretty low, but I'm not totally destroyed. I'm perplexed. There's areas that I'm confused, but yet I'm not in despair. That there's always that grounding and focus that we can have because of the love of Christ that can bring us through um, the toughest and the lowest of seasons. And so as we look at 1 John 4, he's gonna be bouncing back and forth between those three things, talking about how discernment leads to obedience, obedience leads to confidence, confidence leads to discernment, discernment leads to obedience. He's going back and forth between these three concepts throughout the entirety of this chapter. So let's jump in um, to verse one here. He says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now already is in the world. We already talked about the spirit of Antichrist back in chapter two a little bit. But when we read this scripture, what we're going to find is something that's in the book of Ephesians that says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and powers in the heavenly places. That our battle is not a physical battle, but it's a spiritual battle. And even though we have problems with people, our problem is never with people, but our problem is either with sin or our problem is with demonic forces. It's never actually the person, but that person is just the physical representation, you know, of what we're dealing with. Even if that physical person's us, it's our own, it's our own decision our own flesh, that even when I'm battling myself, I'm really not battling me. I'm battling the sin that's within me. And I'm needing God's love. I'm needing the Holy Spirit to help me conquer that. And so John's giving a warning here of not every spirit that we experience is the Holy Spirit. And so how do we know? You know, I hear this phrase a lot. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this. I've said it, so I'm not picking on you if you've said this, but I really felt the Holy Spirit, you know, at that service. I really felt the Holy Spirit during that sermon or during that song. You know, how do we know if that's the Holy Spirit or if that's just Luke, if that's just a demonic spirit? You know, I've had, I've worked with people who've been in kind of the witchcraft stuff. They feel things when they're practicing devil worshiping, whatever it may be. And so how do we know if what we're experiencing, what we're feeling is that the Holy Spirit or is that another type of spirit? And the number one thing he talks about here that the Holy Spirit's going to do is he is going to magnify Jesus Christ. He's going to glorify Jesus and what he's done in our lives. And he's going to line up with the truth of who Jesus is. And we look at this word confession. A lot of times we think maybe the word confession, you might think of a courtroom and maybe someone's testifying, they're confessing on what they saw. And that's really not kind of the context of this word in the Bible. The word in the Bible means to come into agreement, to say the same thing about something that God says. So when the Bible says to confess our sins, we're coming to agreement about what God says about our sin, we're saying about our sin. So if God says our sin is evil and deserving of death, we're not kind of sugarcoating it, going around in circles of, well, you know, it was bad, but I didn't really mean to do it. That wasn't my intentions. And we try to lessen the severity of our sin. That's not confession. Even if we're saying it with our mouth, that's not confession because we're not coming into agreement with God, what he says about sin. So the same thing is said about Jesus, that the Holy Spirit is going to come... Um, in agreement with our heart and testify, confess what is true about Jesus. 
And so we're gonna put up a a slide in a second of what it really means to confess, to come in agreement with God about who Jesus is. I want you guys to think about this quick analogy. If you're at a um, restaurant, it's pretty loud and you're sitting at some booths. There's There's a couple, married couple that looks married at least, that's sitting behind you. And you can kind of hear a little bit, bits and pieces of their conversation, but you're trying not to eavesdrop, but they're talking kind of loud. And then all of a sudden they say, if this happens one more time, I'm done. You hear, you hear someone say that. Now, how many different things could that mean? If this happens one more time, I'm done. Maybe one of the spouses has found out the other one's having an affair. And they tell them, hey, if this happens one more time, I'm done. This marriage is over. Maybe one of the spouses is a Chicago Bears fan and they're watching the game at the restaurant and they fumble again and they drop another touchdown pass and they say, if this happens one more time, I'm done. I'm not a Bears fan anymore, which I've said a lot of times, but I keep cheering for them regardless of how many times they lose. So that could be an option of what this word, what this word means. Maybe the wife is in grad school and she says, if this happens one more time, if I fail one more test, I'm done. I'm gonna fail out of grad school. I'm not gonna be able to pass my classes, right? So the context of this phrase could mean a whole bunch of different things, but the only way to know what it means is to be able to talk to that person, right? That we use words, but words just communicate what we're trying to say. And so words, we can say something that could mean a whole bunch of different things until that person who's saying it clarifies um, what they're actually trying to communicate and trying to say. So this is true in the same way when we say we confess Jesus, we believe in Jesus. What does that mean? What does it mean to believe and who is Jesus? That matters a lot. So I wanna put up a slide here if we've got it of who is Jesus. According to the Bible, if we're confessing Jesus, we're coming into agreement with God. We're saying that Jesus was, is and was God. John, there's a lot of scripture for these. I just picked a few, but John 1, 1 through 3 talks about this. Jesus is also a man. John 1, um, 14 talks about this. So we know that God, Jesus is God, but he's also a man. He's fully God, fully man. Jesus was perfect. Jesus never sinned. There was never any sin or deceit found in him. 1 Peter 2, 22. Jesus is the king of kings, meaning that he has all authority, all power um, over the earth, over demons, over the devil. Jesus died a physical death. He was physically crucified and he died. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Jesus was resurrected from the dead physically, not just spiritually, but the Bible says he was physically resurrected and the disciples were able to touch him, put their hands in his, um, put their hands in his hands in his side. So these are just a few things, there's more, but these are a few core things about confessing. The Holy Spirit confesses, comes in agreement with Jesus Christ. Now, you know who says they believe in Jesus? Muslims, Muslims, Islam believes in Jesus, but you know what they don't believe? Ooh, can we throw that back up there? What they don't believe, they don't believe Jesus was God. They don't believe Jesus was perfect. They don't believe Jesus is the King of Kings. They believe, they don't even believe Jesus died. And they don't believe because they don't believe he died, they don't believe he resurrected. So when a Muslim says they believe in Jesus, they confess Jesus and I'm confessing Jesus, are we confessing the same thing? Not even close, right? Mormons don't believe Jesus was God. They say they believe in Jesus. Church of the Latter-day Saints, Latter-day Christians basically is what that's saying. Not saying the same thing. They're not coming in agreement. They believe Jesus is the half-brother of Satan. They're related. 
We don't believe the same thing. When we say, I believe in Jesus, Mormons say, I believe in Jesus. We don't believe the same thing. We're not confessing the same thing. Jehovah's Witness believe that Jesus had a spiritual resurrection, not a physical resurrection. So when we start to look at the Holy Spirit, it's not just about saying the name of Jesus, but the Holy Spirit brings us in to the correct understanding of who Jesus is. So as we believe in him, the spirit of Jesus that raised Jesus from the dead begins to impact and change our heart. Um, What I like about our worship ministry, if you pay attention, can pick songs that align with the scripture we're gonna study. What was one song that we sang that aligns with this? I believe, right? Believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. Believe in the saints communion, right? Believe in the resurrection. Believe in the Holy Spirit. Believe in the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are one. All those things are, are things that the groups I just mentioned, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Muslims, there's more, that say they believe in Jesus, don't believe in any of those things. So it's really important, and when we say we're confessing Jesus, what are we confessing? Who are we believing in? We're not believing in a name, we're believing in a person. So are we believing, are we trusting in the person of the Bible? So verse four, he continues and says, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Who is the them? Is the false teachers, the antichrist spirit? Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world and the world hears them. We are of God, he who knows God hears us and he who is not of God does not hear us. But this we know, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So there's an encouragement here to the believer that if we're trusting in Christ and we are following the Holy Spirit, he is going to help us and he is going to encourage us through battling our own sin, battling false prophets, battling the spirit of the Antichrist. There's so many things that can um, trap us in this life, can, can come against our faith. And the promise to the believer is he who's in us, the spirit of Christ, is greater than he who's in the world. That we have the power through Christ to overcome whatever obstacles coming our way, including lies and the deceits of the enemy. So we can be encouraged. We can look at this stuff and say, man, am I being deceived? Good question to ask and to get into scripture. But if we come to God, he's given us so many safeguards. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's giving us, given us his word. But what's the third thing he's given us to help with this? The church, community right? For us to hold each other accountable to what's in the scripture. So between the Holy Spirit, between the word of God and between the church, that through the power of Christ, we can overcome the lies that are in our culture and in our community today. So 1 John um, 4, we'll start now in verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So I love this scripture because it defines for us what God's love is. Now, if again, we were to take a poll and ask everyone to confess what the love of God is, 
you know, how many maybe different answers might we get? We, we see the um, word love used all over in our culture. And really, in, I believe in our time, love is used more of a license to enable people and to sin than it is a word that's used for the purpose of obedience, which is what we're gonna see here in 1 John, that love is used for the purpose of obedience, the purpose of finding freedom in God. So there's four things that we'll see if we could throw up on the screen here that God's love is defined by in this scripture. God's love is defined in that God sent his son. God's love is defined that God lived in the flesh. God's love is defined by that he loved us first. And God's love is defined by that he is just. And we're gonna see that in these scriptures. So first we're seeing that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And you know, I've kind of over the years, maybe uh, downplayed a little bit, the fact that God sent Jesus. I think I focused a lot on the life and the death of Jesus as he lived a sinless life and sacrificed his life for us. But there's something about for me, you know, becoming a dad and seeing my son Stone that puts this a little bit more into perspective of that if I needed to die for somebody, I would rather die for them than to have stone die for them, right? I would rather lay down my life than to send my son to lay down his life for a group of people. And when we look at the father's love for us, he is sending his one and only son. He's sending his son as an act of love, as an act of sacrifice for us. So when we look at the love of the father, I'm not saying it's deeper than the love of Christ, but it is a different angle. It's a sacrificial giving. The sacrificial giving of his best and most favorite cherished possession, his son, most cherished relationship, he's sacrificing that for us. So God's love, what love is, is sacrificial giving. It's not giving when we feel like it, not giving when it's easy, but love for each one of us in our marriage, with our church, with our, um, with our kids, love is sacrificial giving. And I love the... Um, the parable of giving, I mean, literal giving as far as financial giving in the Bible where Jesus says, you know, there's these lawyers and tax collectors who are giving all their money. It seems like they're giving a lot of money to the church. But then there's a widow who gives one little mite, one little penny to the church. And he says, she will be blessed because she gave out of her poverty. She sacrificially gave, right? So if I have $15 million and I give $100,000, wow, that seems like a lot. But if I have $10, I get five, you know, what's God actually pleased with? It's not the amount, it's the sacrifice that we're willing to trust him. We're willing to give out of our poverty where it hurts because, not because we're obligated, but because we're loving, because we're responding to the love that God has given us. Second thing, God lived in the flesh. I've said this a lot of times, but it is easier in my opinion to die one death for Christ than it is to live a life of obedience for Jesus. That I could die, I could be martyred, say, I believe in Jesus and be shot or whatever it is. And that's done and over with, right? But picking up our cross every day and deciding to love, for, love God out of obedience, that's tough, right? It takes discipline. It takes that um, encounter with God's love day in and day out to re-energize us to be able to do that. And that's the test of true love. The test of true love isn't how um, awesome your wedding day is right? You could throw a great wedding day, throw, pour all this money into it. But the test of a good marriage of love is going to be seen over time, day in, day out. Jesus lived perfectly every single day, 
exactly how the father wanted him to, denied every sin, every temptation that you and I are faced with. And he did all of this because he loves us. And that's the same power he's giving us with the Holy Spirit. Third thing is that God loved us first. And I think this is so, so important. Um, I want to actually turn to this one real quick. Um, I don't know if this is on your screen. So this is a good time to have your Bible at church. All right, so Romans 5, um, verse 6. I'll give you a second to change, look there. Or Bible apps, pull out your phone. It's all right to have your phone out. Church. So Romans 5, 6 says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more... Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God that through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So in this scripture, it says, we didn't love God, but he first loved us. When did God love us? What state were we in when God loved us? It says enemies. Now, not many of us would describe ourselves as an enemy of God, but by nature we are. That by our sin, by saying, God, I don't want to listen to you. I want to live my own life. We're in, at war with God is what the Bible describes. We're at active war with God. And while we're fighting against God, not wanting God, rejecting God, that is when God loves us the most. That's when he pours out his love towards us while we are rejecting him. And see, for me, when I was kind of at my lowest and I had been in ministry and I'd been serving God, I never felt like I could earn my salvation, but there was a part of me that felt like maybe I could earn God's pleasure. That as I'm doing these things, I'm pleasing God. Maybe he loves me a little bit more. I would have never said that, but that was kind of in my heart. And when I, when God put me kind of flat on my butt where I could not function really in the way that I wanted to, I couldn't serve God in the ways that I wanted to. um, That was a big identity hit. All of a sudden it's like, man, I have absolutely nothing. I have nothing to give to God. And I'm sitting there, um, again, being kind of dysfunctional, really wrestling with, you know, what, what does God think of me right now? You know, and I'm, I've kind of put myself here from some of my own decisions. And this was a scripture that God ended up brought, bringing me to. Not that I first loved God, but that he first loved me when? When I could give him nothing. What can I give him now? Nothing. And the truth is, I can still give God nothing. The only thing I can give God is what he gave me. And so it's so important to recognize that God loves us when we're at our worst. How much more is he gonna love us, be patient with us, um, give us gifts while we are his sons and his daughters? So we have this identity shift, but I think it's so important to realize that we have nothing to give God in the sense of earning his love, earning his favor. Which again, a lot of us, maybe when we first come to Christ, we kind of know that, but over time, we can start to shift into thinking God loves me because I'm good. God loves me because I go to church. God loves me because I do discipleship. God loves me because I share the, the gospel, I evangelize. But we have to realize God's love cannot be earned and he loves us when we can give him absolutely nothing. And I think one of the reasons why this is so important is if, we, if I were to ask today, what is your calling? 
you know, what's your purpose? I think if you would have asked me that two or three years ago, I would have said, you know, to be in ministry, to plant a church or to share the gospel, to reach those who are not being reached. But what I found is our calling, because that can be taken away. That can be taken away for a variety of reasons. One easy one's health, that our health can limit us to what we can do serving. That can, that can easily happen. But what God showed me in that season is my purpose was to love God, was to know God, and was to worship him. And there is nothing that Satan or sin or false teachers or anybody could do to take that away from me. No matter what happens in any circumstance in my life, I can always know God, I can always love him in surrendering to him, and I can always worship him by the way I'm behaving. I, I met, um, I, there was a guy, I'm losing his last name, but his first name was Jake, and he was a elder and served at Monument Bible for a, a, a long time, but he had Lou Gehrig's disease, um, and his body was really deteriorating. And uh, me and my mom went to go see him, and he was in so much pain, and just so, so struggling. But his, his focus was how was his testimony as again, elderly man in a nursing home, how is my testimony gonna possibly lead people to Christ in this nursing home before they die? That's what Jake was focused on. And his favorite thing to do was when people would come and just read the Bible to him because he couldn't really talk. He couldn't do anything. But what he could do is he could love God, right? He could know him as people are reading the word and he could worship him in the way that he went through suffering. Nothing that could be taken away. And why did Jake do that? Man, I haven't thought about that, that for a while, but why could Jake do that? Is because God first loved him. He knew what it was like to be loved when he didn't deserve it. He knew what it was like to love when he was wretched, sinful, evil, but yet God loved him anyways. How easy is it then to suffer for the glory of God? It becomes easy. Maybe easy is the wrong word. It becomes doable because he's empowering us ultimately by his love. The last one on there is God's love is just. God's love does not enable. Love is not an enabler. Love is not something that cuts corners and pushes things under the, the rug. Love is just and love holds us accountable to the truth. And this, this scripture says that God um, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, meaning the payment. Um, it's this substitutionary payment. The wrath of God that should have fallen on me, God didn't say, I love Luke, so I'm just gonna act like he didn't sin. I love Luke, so I'm not gonna hold anybody accountable for what he's done. No, he said, I love Luke so much, and I love human, human beings so much that I'm gonna take the wrath of God that has been stored up, and instead of pouring it out on mankind, I'm gonna pour it out on my son. God didn't withhold any of his punishment. And I hear people all the time say, man, the God of the Old Testament was so wrathful and the God of the New Testament is so loving. It's not true. The reason why it can seem like God is so gracious in the New Testament is because he took all of his anger out on Christ. See, I think our, our understanding of how, how much pain Jesus went through, not just physically, but spiritually, can be so limited. We think like God all of a sudden changed and he's just blown over sin, but he didn't. All that, that accountability and judgment and righteousness that we see in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, instead of pouring it out on his people, he poured it out on one person. He poured it out on Jesus. That God's love 
again, isn't just turning the blind eye to sin, but God's love is fully satisfying his judgment on Jesus so that we could receive the penalty that Jesus deserved. And what penalty did Jesus deserve was blessing, was to be a son of God. So we get what Christ deserved as he got what we deserved. And that is the message of the gospel, that God loved us when we were at our worst so that we could respond in faith, be transformed into the image of Christ and we could love and live like Christ despite our circumstances and for his glory and for his purpose. Verse 12 of 1 John, he continues. Again, we just saw that God's love is gonna bring, or what we're going to see, it's gonna bring obedience now. In verse 12, he says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. So how do we know if we've received God's love? According to the scripture. Anybody want to be brave and yell it out? Mainly because I needed a drink so I can give myself a break to ask that. It's because his spirit abides in us. How do we know that we abide in God? Because his spirit abides in us. How do I know that I've received the love of God? Because his spirit is in us. In the book of Acts, the Jews thought only the Jews could receive the Holy Spirit. Well, and that means only the Jews could be children of God. Well, all of a sudden, Peter sees the Gentiles have the Holy Spirit, which was the sign to the Jews that they were saved. So the Holy Spirit is what lets us know that we are of God. The Holy Spirit's what lets us know that we've received the love of God. Again, confessed it, not just intellectually say, I believe in the love of God, but actually confess biblically that I am in the love of Christ. So how do we know that we have the Holy Spirit? Big controversial topic. So these are some things the Holy Spirit does according to scripture. One, he guides us. John 16, 13 says the Holy Spirit would come and he would guide believers into the truth. Number two, the Holy Spirit seals us. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 talks about the Holy Spirit coming and bringing us assurance of our salvation. A sign of having the Holy Spirit is that we know that we're saved. We know that God has saved us. Number three, the Holy Spirit empowers us. Acts 1, 8 empowers us to be a witness, to share the gospel, but also empowers us to overcome our sin. The Holy Spirit convicts us, tells us what's wrong. Again, not perfectly. We need to read the Bible too, but the Holy Spirit gives us conviction of sin. The Holy Spirit's the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. So we have confidence that he'll raise us from the dead. And it takes a pretty powerful spirit to raise someone from the dead who's been crucified. That same power of that spirit's in us to overcome our sin. Again, to be a witness. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the Holy Spirit gifts us. Every single believer on on, um, the moment of your salvation, the Holy Spirit gifts you, gives you empowerment to be a part of the body of Christ and to serve God. The Holy Spirit gives us fruit, joy, peace, gentleness, patience, kindness, right? Changes our lives, physical fruit. And the Holy Spirit helps us pray. It says in our weakness, the Holy Spirit guides us into what to pray. So our sign of receiving the love of God can be that, you know, um, we're nice, we're kind, we want to help other people. But it really comes down to, does the fruit of the Holy Spirit, is what the Holy Spirit does in the Bible, is that happening in our lives? That's really the main test he gives here. Not that we're perfect, not that we never sin, but do we see the empowerment, the effects of the Holy Spirit in our life? If we don't, 
we're gonna find that again, we're not, we're not following the spirit of God. We're following maybe a spirit of antichrist. We're following our own spirit, our own fleshly desires. And then he caps, and I don't wanna rush through this, but I wanna read this together because he, he finishes this chapter with summarizing again. Now that we know what, who Jesus is, what his love is, and who the Holy Spirit is and how he impacts our life, now we're gonna be discerning, we're gonna be obedient, and we are gonna be confident. So see if you can catch those points in these verses. Verse 13 of 1 John 4. By this we know that we abide in him. Again, we know we have confidence and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent the son as the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, confidence, because he is, so are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him, why? Because we have first been loved. We've received his love, therefore we love God. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him and he who loves God must love his brother also. The final challenge or litmus test for us is how we do with other people. And I've heard it said by a guy one time, man, I love God, but I don't really like the church. According to this scripture, that's not, not really possible. That again, we can struggle with the church. We can struggle with people. But the Bible is saying we cannot hate our brother. We cannot um, lack, again, obedience to serve our brother, to serve the church, to serve those who are in need, and at the same time, know the love of Christ. That the love of Christ is gonna move us, move us into obedience. And we're gonna have a... Um, I'm going to ask Rebecca to come up in a second, but she is going to be talking about something we do as an outreach to the community that isn't just food, but is for a spiritual purpose um, in our Thanksgiving ministry. But before we do that, I just want to give an opportunity because I feel like as we talk about the gospel and we talk about what the gospel does in our lives, if that's something you haven't experienced or haven't ever done, I just want to make sure you have um, the opportunity to do that, to really confess, believe, in the God of the Bible, to really confess and believe in who Jesus Christ said, said he is and what he can do in your life. And maybe there's other people here who you have done that, you know Christ, but maybe you're in a season like I was where you're pretty spiritually deflated. You know, that obedience, that sense of urgency, that fire and passion for Christ has been dwindling in your life. And this can be also an opportunity um, for you to pray and to ask God to rekindle that love, to really recognize that it may be as disobedient as you've been in the season that God still loves you and he's giving you an opportunity to turn around, opportunity to repent, opportunity to serve him in a way that maybe you never have um, before. So I just wanna ask you guys to, um, to um, bow your heads and I just wanna pray um, with us. And if there's anybody um, who has not received Christ, you've never Maybe you've said the words, but you've never seen this at action in your life. You've never actually been empowered by God to change that you can ask God to do that. So Father God, I just thank you for your faithfulness. God, I pray for those here who know you and who love you and have lost sight of your love for them. 
God, and I just pray that you would empower them in this season, Lord. They would confess their need for you um, to change and to come back to their first love and what changed them. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who has not um, received the gospel, Lord, that you would work in their heart and their spirit to do so. And if you're listening right now and you're praying, if you've never made that confession, I just ask you to put your hand up. We'd love to connect with you, um, have an opportunity to disciple you um, in this season. So Father God, for those who have not ever received your gospel, Lord, who have not experienced this power, God, they, they know of your love, Lord, but they have not experienced your love. God, I just pray that you'd move in their hearts, Lord, and there would be a, an action step towards um, repentance, Lord, towards turning from their sin, turning to you, receiving your love by faith. God, and I just pray that your Holy Spirit would work and um, be transforming them in this season. We ask you these things in Jesus' name, amen.